0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tanellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. My next guest is a much-loved, international, best-selling Australian author whose novels are steeped in history and intrigue, adventure and exotic locations, shedding light on some of society's most difficult issues. The daughter of a Russian mother and an Australian father, she describes herself as an intrepid traveller whose passion for language and other cultures is matched only by her love for Australia. She volunteers as a rescuer and carer for the New South Wales Wildlife Information and Rescue Service, or WIRES, is a patron of the World League for the Protection of Animals and lives in Sydney with her three rescue cats. Valentino, Versace and Gucci. Don't you just love those names? (laughs) Her eighth novel, which is due for release by HarperCollins in early September, is a spellbinding thriller set against the backdrop of a small coastal town in 1950s Australia. The author is Belinda Alexandra and the novel is The Mystery Woman. Welcome to the podcast, Belinda. Thank you so much,
1: Claudine. Thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: It's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be chatting with you today about this exciting new novel, *The Mystery Woman*. It was such a rich story, filled with passion, intrigue, scandal, and secrets. So fabulous! I devoured it in almost one
1: sitting. Wow, that's amazing! <laughs> that's amazing. I often feel, um, because you know, it took me a while to write that I'm book. Sure it did. <laughs> I often feel that books are like fireworks do you know what I mean you've put all this or or a really great meal you put all this work and planning and preparation into it but the thing is the enjoyment the enjoyment can happen you know I think of actors preparing for a a stage play or something and all their lifetime of work is done in in two hours and it's consumed and it's done and I I think that's really, um, you know, it's part of the joy of this work and that if people consume it and enjoy it, uh, all that effort, you know, all that daily work is a fantastic payoff. So I'm so happy to hear that. I did write it as a page turner. And so if you're turning pages, then I've succeeded yeah, um, in that. And I think uh, part of the hard work that we put into a book is to make it seamless and is to make the reader feel that they are just not in their life anymore, that they're, they're totally in this story. So I actually, I like to, I like to hear that rather than, uh, two months later, I'm still trying to finish your book. <laughs> that was most definitely not the case. with Thank you. Book. So tell me, Belinda, what inspired this story? Well, this story actually came out of, I think it's, you know, there comes a time in a writer's life where we just long to do something a bit different and I had written big historical world stage novels that I absolutely loved doing and I had played also with the past and the the present narrative which is really like writing two books in one. Mm. So I'd done these massive, massive stories And it was just coming to a time in my life where I thought, I really want to do something different. And the kind of stories I've really loved are those great gothic romances of Daphne du Maurier and just those classic, classic mysteries. So when we think of Agatha Christie or we think of Alfred Hitchcock movies or something that's just full of suspense but has a sense of elegance and and class about it as well and an atmospheric setting – and it was just so lucky for me that everything collided in the perfect sort of coming together of people, uh, the right agent who sort of suggested, I think you're ready for a new direction and go for it. And a publisher, Anna Valdinger at HarperCollins, who I've had a long association with and who, you know, has, has gone through the long historical uh, sagas with me. She's go, yeah, you can do this. We can totally you can totally do this. And The fact that I had that kind of career support was fantastic. And it was also a time in my life where my own life had gone through massive changes as well. So it was really time for going in a new direction. And it's always a bit of a risk because you build up your readership of people who've liked what you've done. But I think with this novel, and I think that it's so lovely in, in what you've said about it, is that I've included what my you know loyal readers love which is the detail the richness of setting the sense of time and and place and the character but I've taken it in another direction is that it's set rather on big world stage and during a big world war and upheaval in in human history it's in a very small remote town Um, and so it's a really closed claustrophobic setting And, you know, that's really what I was going for. I understand that it is a different direction for you, but you've really pulled this
0: one off and I'm sure that all your readers are going to jump on board with this this new direction. Absolutely wonderful. So for those who haven't read it yet, can you tell me what The Mystery Woman is about?
1: Yes. Now, The Mystery Woman is set in 1952 and it's set in an isolated New South Wales uh, south coast town of Shipwreck Bay. Now the main character, Rebecca Wood, is fleeing a scandal in Sydney and she takes up the position as as, um, postmistress in this town. And she thinks it's going to be kind of a place to lick her wounds and to recover. But what she actually finds is that, you know, rather than the virtuous little small town it presents itself to be, there are a lot of dark secrets. And she meets a cast of characters, of small town characters, who are also just you know, corrupt to the core. And as she uncovers the secrets, of course, her life is in great danger.
0: Was the town based on an actual town or inspired by different towns across Australia?
1: I think it's more, you know, actually more than a, a... place because a lot of people have asked me because of the the whaling background in this town was it Eden on the uh New South Wales south coast and I have to apologize to the whole township of Eden and say no it's not (laughs) you know it's a beautiful beautiful town uh that's actually been through a lot of difficulties in the the past Year, but definitely not them it's totally a fictional town which was also new for me to create a town for my imagination what i would say it's a fictional town that we all know well because all of us have been in some sort of claustrophobic closed-in situation even if it's a, a sort of toxic workplace we all know this sort of situation so although it's a small town setting with those classic small town characters who are not all that they seem, I think it's a um, setting that feels familiar to all of us, no matter what our background is. And I actually, uh, for a lot of the history of the the post office, I consulted a, a lovely man, Harry Novak. Um, who lives in the small Victorian town of Stratford, where he was the postmaster for many years, um, and he's told me, "Oh, you've nailed this small town on on the head," <laughs> and he's grown up and lived in a small town, whereas I haven't, yes. and so that's a great a great compliment.
0: Belinda, you're a person who is renowned for your views on animal protection. So was it yep. important to you to write a story that shed a light on the whaling industry and the near extinction of some whale species?
1: Yes, like that is probably it's like a background thing it's not at the forefront of this novel but it's sort of reflecting the cruelty and brutality and heartlessness of the people in the town and i think what surprises me is that a lot of australians don't even know we ever had a whaling industry and we did it was one of our biggest primary industries for years and a horrifically cruel process and yet when I sort of did the research, it was just this absolute heartlessness of a commercial industry that people just had complete heartlessness for these magnificent ancient animals who have been around, you know, before, before humankind. So it was just, it, it was really just something to reflect that in our own culture, because we're very judgmental of other cultures, but we also have our own history to clean up. and, I think, you know, because there was such an outcry in the 70s against the cruelty of whaling, and this story is said in the 50s, it took a very long time for people to really change their minds. And I think there's a lot of animal issues in Australia today where we're pretty much just thinking about economics and we're not really thinking the, about the cruelty of what we're doing. And I hope that in some ways, in looking at our history, we might reflect on our present as well.
0: And to think it was really not so long ago that no
1: whaling expedition
0: happened it was like like late 70s or something yeah late 70s Yeah, yeah yeah it's really quite difficult to come to terms with
1: i think what i love about history in many ways is i do think the human race is going forward I'm not one of those people that say, "Oh, we're backwards and we never change." I think it's more like two steps forward and one step backwards because Mm -hmm. there's always this pool of resistance to change. But my personal view in studying history is we are going forward and we are reaching our potential. And we have tremendous problems. We've got tremendous difficulties to deal with, you know, in terms of our climate. You know, in terms of what's happening with our health now, a lot of a lot of challenges. But I think that we are up to the challenge and I hope that my books in some way encourage us like although there's stories I think stories can encourage us in in many ways so I hope that you know my stories are, are contributing something positive in, in that regard.
0: What made this book such a riveting read was your attention to detail. Things like fashion, hairstyles, cuisine, even home decor, all evoked a bygone era. So tell me, what research did you have to do to bring Rebecca and her life in Shipwreck Bay alive?
1: Well, I think that's the part of, um, you know, being a storyteller that I absolutely love is actually looking for what I would call the telling detail you know, the detail that actually evokes an emotion in us, mm-hmm. while there's many things that I could include, uh, it's really searching out for that one thing that has everybody going, oh, I, I know that, or I can feel that, or I can see it, or I remember that. And with the 1950s, you know, I read the magazines uh, of the time, so I sort of got a an idea of what was... Um, you know, what was people's concerns and, and what were they thinking? And their fashion was actually stunning, but their food was atrocious. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, salad and aspic and all this, you know. And I think I actually included one that my editor actually questioned, and I think it was, Are you serious? Bacon and sardine rolls? And I go, Yep, yeah, that's that's the kind of combo that people had and the cheese on sticks of toothpicks that you know i mean we still have those kind of things at cocktail parties and so we obviously haven't got too far away from that (laughs) (laughs) but just all those kind of uh you know those things it it reminds me of how far australia has come so i really enjoy i have you know I, i collect things from uh book fairs and from markets of you know recipe books from the 1950s i have. Beauty books from the 1950s that, or all sorts of things to sort of think how people were were thinking about things. And the idea that a woman might hide her powder compact under her pillow and her lipstick so that she could put it on before her husband woke up just, you know, (laughs) strikes me. Strikes me as really quite funny. But all those kind of details, I just love researching those. Yeah, so I I do collect materials as I go along. And I'm the person who's always in museums and the person that picks up the strange books in the library that, you know, nobody else has read for the past 20 years. <laughs> and I, I read a lot of the newspapers and the magazines. And I'm a bit of a, you know, I think I'm a bit of a frustrated interior designer. So I do spend a lot of time designing the homes that my characters live in. Or maybe it comes from a childhood that my mother filled with dolls houses or something like that. <laughs> now, in addition to the commentary
0: on the whaling industry, there's a very prominent thread in the book that addresses the didactic views on women, yeah, double standards that existed when it came to infidelity and the so-called protection marriage offered to women at the time. Was this something you consciously wanted to explore?
1: Yeah, I think it's actually, it's a very important aspect for us to sort of, you know, as I said, with history, it teaches us if we can see where we have come from, we sort of understand where we are better. And so to get myself into the mentality of the 1950s, I had to remember that Australia was very much influenced in its thinking by religion. And religion was quite a divisive thing culturally whether you were catholic whether you were protestant what branch of protest you know the protestant church you belonged to but it was actually the idea that people were brought up on the story of adam and eve and adam of course was you know god's first creation and woman was sort of created as a helper from a rib and um, Then, of course, even though she was this sort of secondary creation, she then brought sin upon the world and she pulled Adam down, you know, out of paradise. So all the the troubles of the world were basically due to her. And I think we forget that kids at Sunday school were told this story over and over again and women were told this story about themselves and their place in society, that they were a helpmate, Never, never the the one to have the glory shone on them but always sort of the one to have glory reflected on them and so i'm very interested in in the women that were able or who desired more than that the women who wanted more than that and i think for me i'm very I'm fascinated by people who are ahead of their time. And of course, there's another character in terms of whaling Stefan Otto, who's ahead of his time as well. But Rebecca is also a character that's very frustrated by this societal structure that she's been forced into. But she herself perpetuates it in some of the things she does as well. And so I'm really, really interested in people that learn to break out, despite society trying to push them into a mould, they just break out somehow and yes I was very interested in looking at that and I was also very thoughtful about well how does the 1950s reflect on us today because we sort of think that we've come so far and yet there's some aspects that I think well have we really come so far Mm. or are we just repeating the same thing in a new way and I think in some of the in some of the aspects and what I tried to show in the story that quite often women are their own worst enemies or they're their own worst enemies towards other women. And definitely the people that pulled other women into a domestic life and, and, you know, there were women pulling other women into line of the domestic life is for you and there's no other life for you. It's not just men sort of holding women back. In that. And I can sort of see a little bit of that today that sometimes what we do to other women and how we judge other women so harshly rather than support them, that we're repeating a little bit of that as well. Yeah, it's such a
0: fascinating insight into what happened back then, but also made me reflect, as you say, on how far or not we have come yeah so let's talk about domestic abuse and violence for a moment Um, shipwreck bay is a town that protects the men who commit violence towards their women and we saw examples of victim blaming shaming and men who believed it was their right to discipline and threaten their wives we also saw some fairly explicit forms of gaslighting now that's a phenomenon that exists as much today as it might have back in the 50s doesn't it
1: yeah. Look, I think that's the that's one of the areas of history where I look at, and I think, are we doing the same thing in a new way, mm. or are we just doing the same thing? And of course, domestic violence is a huge issue um, that we're starting to talk about a lot more now. In the nineteen fifties, you know, as we said. Women basically didn't have a lot of opportunities. Marriage was their their path in in life, and so a lot of the advice women who were in domestic violence situations, the advice given was make the best of it. And sometimes you actually would see serious advice in magazines and so on of, don't talk too much when your husband comes home. Don't don't upset him. Make him his nice you know meal. And there's sort of like this idea that women can control domestic violence by their own behavior mm. and what we're really learning in studying domestic violence is that is actually how we abuse women is by making them believe that they can control it that they have some part in what's happening with domestic violence that they may be contributing to it and if they just change this behavior this way or that way and what I really wanted to show in this novel is a thing that I think we don't understand about domestic violence and that's the psychological control and our depth of psychological control for most of us is the verbal abuse that a woman might get like you're fat you're useless you're stupid you're ugly we understand that but we actually don't really understand that domestic violence isn't something that just sort of happens and I think a lot of us have this stereotype that men who are domestically violent you know can't control their tempers But what I really wanted to show was the predatory nature of domestic violence and the planned nature of it and the deliberate, deliberate, deliberate control that begins well before the first punch is ever thrown or the first shout is ever given. And what I think hasn't changed for us is we're still victim-blaming and shaming because we sort of see women who've suffered domestic violence as somehow failed feminists, like we tell them, oh, you don't have to put up with that, darling, or if a man ever did that to me, I I, I wouldn't stand for it. And very liberated women are still suffering domestic violence. Mm. And violence is not just happening to women that come from cultures where violence is accepted. So we're sort of looking at women today who are in domestic violence situations saying, well, come on, you can get a job, you can get out, why doesn't she just leave? We're we're saying these things and in that sense we're abusing these women again because we don't see the psychological planning and foundation that these hugely manipulative men have laid long before. the violence becomes obvious. They, they're like predators who wait. They wait till the first child is born, the third child is born, till the woman gives up her job and she's financially dependent, till she trusts him, till he's shifted her attention away from her own needs to his needs so subtly that she doesn't even see it. And I think this lack of our understanding of how predatory And how psychologically abusive domestic violence is that even doctors and GPs and politicians are treating it like a marital problem Mm. rather than a problem of control and abuse. And so I think the question we should stop asking ourselves is, you know, instead of why doesn't she just leave, we need to ask, what are we doing in society that we're producing predators Mm. You know, what? what is it we're doing that's producing this toxic masculinity? And if I could do anything for women to help women, to help the sisterhood, and yeah. of course, men suffered um, domestic violence too. And I'm not negating that. It's just that this is the story of a woman. It would be for all of us to understand the psychological aspect of it and to come to terms with gaslighting and to actually know what gaslighting is and to know all the techniques of manipulation so that we can guard ourselves, so that we can uh, inform our daughters and sons um, so that we can warn our friends and us and, you know, sisters, all the women around us, co-workers, so that we can really understand what's going on. Because as long as we don't understand what's going on, we can't really fix this problem. Just as you
0: were talking, it it made me think of the sexual grooming that happens, sexual predators and their and their victims. Yeah.
1: It's it's along the same kind of lines, isn't it? Absolutely. And we have to see it that way i mean there will be an element of men who are abusive because they're lashing out they are lashing out there is that aspect but i think we're missing the fact of um how deliberate Mm. a lot of domestic abuse is and how planned it is like if it's not deliberate and planned how come the perpetrator can stop as soon as the police arrive at the door and be charming Like how can he, he's controlling his behavior. He's not out of control. Um, He's controlling. Or if the telephone rings suddenly, he's, oh, hi, you know, nothing's wrong. No, no, we're good. We're just having a discussion. You know, it's, there's a lot of a lot of control and I would actually put out there and this is what I've tried to show in the story that it's not submissive non-assertive women that end up in these situations necessarily it's the very characteristics that make women great CEOs that make them wonderful mothers that make them fantastic friends is their ability to empathize and their ability to Put themselves in another person's shoes. Their ability to communicate is what actually predators use against them because the predator is very good at making himself the victim. And we don't realize how our strong points are often used against us. And so I think that's what, if we can understand the psychology behind domestic violence, we're going to be so much better at handling it.
0: It really is a very eye-opening theme in this book. One in four women experience domestic violence in their lifetime here in Australia, and it's a frightening statistic. And in the age of COVID-19 here in Australia, we're seeing a rise in the incidence of domestic violence again, which is
1: horrifying. It It is horrifying. And I think listening to victims talk about domestic violence, the interesting thing is that they often say, I don't know what happened to me. I I don't I don't know where I went and because of that and then people saying to them oh you weren't assertive or you were too weak or something they're turning it on themselves but what I'm trying to say is they don't know what happened to them because what happened to them was happening for years Mm -hmm. subtly and slowly and measuredly over over time and um you know until until everybody who deals with domestic violence and until we understand that we can't put the light on what it actually is mm. and so i think i really hope that we'll get that discussion that we'll really get that discussion of understanding the psychological nature yeah. because we we in a lot of the women who suffered domestic violence say the psychological abuse was far more traumatic than the punch mm. And harder to recover from. So
0: rumour and innuendo was also a very powerful tool used by you in this story, a a tool that was used by the small town gossips or those who enjoyed status in Shipwreck Bay to try and turn the tide of opinion, not only against Rebecca, but also the other character that you mentioned in the book, Stefan Otto. So I wanted to ask you, was Stefan based on a real life person?
1: I think Stefan represents for me, the kind of person that I really admire. Mm. So the kind of person, you know, as we were talking about earlier, that's ahead of their time. And of course, he in the book is speaking out against whaling, not on economic terms, because by the 50s, it wasn't a very viable industry anyway. He's speaking out on the idea that animals have an intrinsic value, and that we shouldn't just recklessly destroy things especially when there are other alternative um, products available but he's ridiculed as you said and is is outcast uh, for standing up and for me that's the individual that I admire the most because eventually by the end of the 70s it was a groundswell and most people would be horrified to think of whaling in Australia now we, we're a whale watching country mm. a country that appreciates that uh, beautiful mammal but You know, he speaks out long before it's a groundswell and and he's really the lone voice in it. You know, being ridiculed and being made an outcast is an extremely powerful way of controlling us. But it doesn't work on him because he's stronger than that. And so I have a lot of respect for him or his sense of purpose and justice is stronger than that. But we still silence people who speak up with our ridicule. We still do it. Mm -hmm. we still do it it is a powerful method of control so I do have an author's note in the book where I encourage anyone who today is standing up against an injustice that nobody else seems to care about and maybe they're even being ridiculed or you know made made fun of it or sort of shunned for standing up for it I just have such admiration for those those people. We might see it in um, today in sexual equality or sexual identity equality, uh, that people are being ridiculed and outcast for, for speaking up. But eventually, it does become a groundswell. I've seen that in history time and time again, which is why I enjoy studying history so much, uh, that you do see that human race can go forward, yeah. but it's those initial voices that speak up you know, that I admire so much.
0: Indeed, trailblazers.
1: Trailblazers, absolutely.
0: <laughs> now, Belinda, moving away from the mystery woman for just a moment, I understand that your first nonfiction title
1: is about to be released,
0: The Divine Feline, A She-Cat Lady's Guide to a Woman's Best Friend. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Now, that is um, that was such a treat to do because on one side... I'm this novelist who messes with people's psychology (laughs) and frightens them with books. And on the other side, um, the divine feline is just pure pleasure. Um, But it does have quite a serious message about joy in it. Now, it's a collection of, you know, I go into the history of women and cats, why women love cats so much and why there has been this strong relationship between women and cats since ancient Egypt uh, through to the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, um, the Victorian times, and of course to today. And I also include my memoirs of my life with cats, all the cats that I've loved um, since my very first cat Snuggie when I was a little girl to Valentino and Versace and Gucci who I have today. There's also lots of tips on cat behaviour and cat psychology, um, how to take good care of your cat's health and how to perform magic tricks, magical spells with your cats. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of fun in the book. So I think it's a book for women who really love their cats and are getting away from the idea of the crazy cat lady because, you know, we are talking today a bit about the sisterhood and feminism you know, I've I've used the title chic cat lady rather than crazy cat lady because I don't like that story of the cat lady who's meant to be this sort of social loner who lives with her cats and eventually she dies and she's found three weeks later with her face half eaten off um, by her cats. And to me that's sort of like a, a level of control, that story telling women that who are independent and live on their own who don't have children, that this is going to be their fate. Mm. Um, There's no equivalent of the the cat man, you know, crazy cat man in that regard. And so I'm just allowing women to see actually where that came from originally from, you know, the witch burning and the control of women there. So I guess it does have some parallels to um, the mystery woman but in a much Mm. more lighthearted way. Uh, way, but it's sort of a book like it's beautifully illustrated and designed. The border of it is black velvet, so it feels like a little kitty Ooh, when you touch line. the the cover. <laughs> yeah, so it's tactile. It's it's beautifully illustrated. I hope it's stories that are really going to make people laugh and and cry and really enjoy their feline companions. So it was a lot of fun to do that book. I think it was the book I was born to write, actually. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I think so. So where can people find out more about this book? Well, I am actually, uh, there's my Facebook page, Um People can go to Belinda Alexandra, author, Facebook page. But I'm actually in the process of finishing up the de- – I'm working with a web designer. We're going to have a very, very spiffy website at the end of this month where there will be lots of information uh, about both books. There will be blogs and there will be a newsletter. So that's Belinda underscore Alexandra And that will be up from the 1st of September, uh, launching it on the full moon, I think. Mm, Fantastic. So appropriate for a book about cats.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. So, Belinda, as a prolific writer, I wondered if you might have some tips about writing and or the publishing process to offer the many writers who listen to this podcast.
1: I wish I was a prolific writer. <laughs> I look at Agatha Christie or another author like that, and I'm just, you know, astounded. I'm actually quite a slow, a slow writer. Although it seems in the past couple of years I've become more um, prolific. Maybe it's, it's practice. But my advice to um, writers uh, would be write basically, and just keep writing and write something every day and be passionate about what you're doing because I think it's the passion that brings magic into your work. Um, Some days are easier than others, so there's a sense of discipline. But I would say, you know, with my first book, I often tell people this story that, um, you know, a lot of people feel that they don't have time to write because they're expecting that they need to sit down at a desk in an absolutely quiet room. And nobody can disturb them for seven days at a time. (laughs) Somebody will bring them their meals and all of this. But life really isn't like that. And when I was writing my first book, White Gardenia, I was working for a conference company. So I was constantly on planes um, and in hotel rooms And I was living in New York at the time. So I would have this notebook and I would write my novel, a little piece of my novel every day, whether I was on a plane or whether I was before I went to bed in the hotel room or while I was on the subway train. And I think the most important thing is to connect with your novel. It doesn't matter where you are. Um, It doesn't matter if at your desk or whether it's your, you know, got complete silence around you. I lived with five English girls you know, in a room that came off a kitchen. So I was trying to write White Gardenia while they were cooking (laughs) or talking on the telephone or, or whatever. I think if you're passionate about your story, you overcome any sort of obstacle to writing it. So I think find a story that you're passionate about telling and then connect with it in some way every day, even if it's just doing a bit of research on the story or mapping out the next scene that you're going to write or think about the next scene. Just connect with it every day. So
0: what's next? Are you working on anything else at the moment?
1: Yes, it will be... um, So I'm going in this new direction of the sort of mystery thriller. I am sending a story. It will probably be in the 1950s again in Sydney. But um, that's all I'm going to say about it for now because when the idea is coming together, that's the worst time for me to talk about it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Because I'll lose it. (laughs)
0: Belinda congratulations on a wonderful memorable book in the mystery woman I wish you every success with it and the others that are sure to come thank you so much for joining me on talking Aussie
1: books oh it's been such a pleasure Claudine and I hope that um readers have really enjoyed our discussion today
0: Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, ClaudineTinellus.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.